Hello, welcome to Origin Story. Each week we take a word, idea, figure or event from history, discuss its origins and evolution and talk about how it plays into political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I'm a columnist with the I newspaper and I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. So welcome to Nuclear War Part 2. I don't think in reality there would be a part two to nuclear war, would they? But there is in this podcast. So last week we talked about the, the, the sort of evolution of the idea of the bomb, the design of the actual thing, the Manhattan Project, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the dawn of the Cold War. So we're going to pick up now in 1950 and uh, all the delightful doomsday scenarios to come. Now, I think a great example of how psychologically harrowing this situation was, is the story of the cobalt bomb, which in 1950 in a radio discussion program, Leo Szilard goes, H-bombs are bad enough. What if... <laughs> Good old Leo. <laughs> what if somebody got a H-bomb and jacketed it with cobalt, which has an extremely long half-life, so then when it went off, it would create this kind of toxic radioactive cloud. You know, if it was big enough, then it could encircle the, the globe. Um, now, this never actually exists. No one ever builds it. No one ever tries to build it. But it becomes this enormously important idea in the 50s and 60s of the doomsday machine. Oh, wow. Of the bomb or the cluster of bombs, which could just end the world. So Neville shoots novel on the beach, made into a movie. That's what happens there. They're all in Australia, and that's the last country to, to get the, the cobalt cloud. It's also the doomsday machine in Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, the whole story of Strange Love is, is fascinating because Kubrick was so serious about getting it right or making his point. And he did lots of research. He spoke to strategists like Thomas Schelling and figure that I think we're going to talk about Herman Kahn, the author of On Thermonuclear War. And so much of what we see as satire in Dr. Strange Love is taken directly from Herman Kahn of the formerly of the Rand Corporation's very serious nuclear strategy. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not a great exaggeration. Doctor Strange of the character is is a whole other thing, but actually the logic of the movie is the logic of real life. Uh, nuclear strategy. But the thing is that they're having accidents all the time, right? I mean, in 1958, a B-47E bomber flying over South Carolina accidentally released a nuclear bomb, which just happened not to have its nuclear core inserted at the time. In 1960, there were signals from the ballistic missile early warning radar that bounced back off the moon as it rose over Norway and resulted in a computer-generated alert with a high certainty of immediate attack. In 1966, four thermonuclear weapons fell off a B-52 in a mid-air collision over Spain. What to three of them fell on the ground and one of them was recovered from the sea. So like, these instances were happening all the time. And part of the thing around nukes was like, even if by some miracle your rational sort of game theory strategy works, there's always yeah. just the chance that some bloke drops it off a plane. Okay, so I mentioned Herman Kahn, who was this phenomenal character. People said he was the real Dr. Strangelove, but he was nothing like Dr. Strangelove mm. because he was this just this just this huge guy. People compared him to like Mr. Pickwick and Santa Claus. <laughs> um, and he was almost like a stand-up comedian. He said, I can be very funny about nuclear war. <laughs> and he would deliver. He was so eloquent that he would just deliver these incredibly long lectures, basically until someone said, you need to stop now. Mm-hmm. When he was commissioned to write an editorial for a newspaper or magazine, he would turn up at the office and just start talking 
and somebody would take it down in real time. And that was the piece. <laughs> so he's this kind of like superstar strategist. And his whole thing is like, we have to stop talking about total destruction, annihilation, and all that. You have to believe that this is a war. And there's a huge disagreement about whether nuclear war can actually be called a war, the continuation of politics by other means, yes. or whether it is murder-suicide, right? Mm -hmm. And he just goes, no, we could survive. So he he does this, he, he sort of does this thing about tragic, this goes straight into Dr. Strange Love, tragic but distinguishable post-war states. And there's a table which shows the difference between 2 million and 160 million dead and how quickly it would take them to uh, recover GDP, <laughs> pre-war GDP. Oh my God. And then there's... <laughs> And probably the most famous line is, will the survivors envy the dead? Mm. And his answer was, uh, was no. You know, look on the bright side. He was this anti-apocalyptic thinker. And, and I, I totally understand his logic. Mm. He was like, if we just say this is the end of what we can't even think about it. There's just no way to, it paralyzes the mind. You, you can't do anything about it. Because you've got to think about, well, how can you minimize the damage. A lot of people obviously find this completely horrific. There's mm. a famous review which calls it a moral tract on mass murder, <laughs> how to plan it, how to commit it, how to get away with it, how to justify it. Somebody goes, how could anybody even think this? So his next book is called Thinking the Unthinkable. And he's like, you've got to do it. So I, I understand the criticisms. But I think he also, he occupies this space where you're actually just going, well, what about, why don't we try and think about this as something short of Armageddon? See, someone has to be doing that, right? I, I'm with you. Mm. But there's also the thing that once you start talking this way about it, you innately normalize it. You put it as if it is. And the you make it is, possible. Yeah. Right, exactly. And they don't, they are unable to prove over and over and over again how you can have any nuclear war that doesn't end with, as the quote was before, like human suffering off the scale of our comprehension. You know, they just can't show how you ever stop it, really. So, I mean, you take, so, I mean, the Rand Corporation is the classic example of this, but, but you know, in the 60s, which is sort of laughably called the golden age of nuclear strategic study, and you're like, what a great time it must have been to be around then. You know, it, Game theory comes in, it's full of the terminology that we now know very well, you know, zero-sum and non-zero-sum games. They've got this computational power, they're doing the system-level analysis, and constant sort of calculations of the kill properties of a missile of a given range and accuracy against the point targets of a certain hardness, and whether there's, what are the relative merits of equivalent megatonnage and counter-military mm. potential as measures of military power. But the trouble is, they can't model the politics. This is the part. They can do these fantastically right. complex bits. But when it comes to actual politics, it's this really quite basic, crude political frameworks that they use. And the evidence that they have is this sort of soft, it's these sort of historical parallels that they're feeding into these models. And these very, because they basically have no, no experience of the crisis. And then you get the really devastating criticism, which I think the game theorists in particular did recognize, but couldn't respond to really, which is that 
game theory in particular is about two rational actors. Mm. Like, a, I mean, there's a problem anyway that people aren't really that rational, but they're at their least rational, you know, in the middle of a tactical nuclear war. <laughs> you know, we're just thinking, how do people act in this scenario? You say, okay, so we're going to have one nuke strike to try and take out their missile capacity, right? We're just like, how is that going to be interpreted at the time? Are they going to interpret that as what a generous limited nuclear strike that only killed 10 million people, right? Or are they going to think this is the worst thing that's happened in the history of my country and we're going to fucking obliterate them? Or will they cower in fear? Will they lose their minds? You know, would they be stunned into inactivity? So none of that, no one could possibly have any idea, but we could imagine that it would be operating at the absolute extreme of, of human experience. And then they came up with a really sort of, the problem they could just never get out from under, which comes back again to that first quote, the destructive power, which is that no one at any point could come up with a viable defense. So no matter how much they thought about the first strike taking out you know, nuclear capacity, no one at any point said, we can actually stop having a reciprocal strike against us. And in fact, in, in the US, there was a recognition by presidents over and over, sometimes explicitly stated, being like, we cannot stop that. We know that if we fire, we get fired back on. And then we come to, I suppose, the climax of all of this stuff in a way. I mean, there's a long after story, but the closest the world ever gets to nuclear war which is the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this comes hard on the heels of the Berlin Crisis, which leads mm -hmm. to the building of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall was like the, the good solution to that, because that is what caused this absolute panic and a craze for fallout shelters. And a lot of people, what we remember happened in Cuba, a lot of people were feeling this in a year earlier, the autumn yeah. of 61. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's points, there's literally tanks pointed at each other with meters in between them. You know, you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. this is it now, it's happening right so now. So you've had the Berlin trauma, now you have the Cuba trauma, where the simple version is that they're facing off, the Americans discover that there is Soviet missiles have been installed in Cuba and they have to decide how to deal with that. And Robert Kennedy, in his book about it, says it brought the world to the abyss of nuclear destruction and the end of mankind. There is a moment during the crisis where I think the world comes, I mean, really within a hair's breadth. B-59 nuclear Soviet sub is sent over. At this point, the blockade is enforced. The sub is authorized to launch nuclear torpedoes independently of Moscow. So the US forces, when they see it, they drop these depth charges, and it's intended to be the sort of warning and an instruction to the submarine to surface. But they don't know it has a nuke. But, right. And the people on the submarine don't know that it's a warning shot. They think it's just the sound of, of war. At this point, I mean, back you know, in the US, Kennedy has his hand has his hand right up to his face, just clenching it into a fist, thinking like, this is the moment, this is how it goes wrong. Captain Vitaly Savitsky orders the launch of the nuclear torpedo at that point. He says, we're going to blast them now, we will die, but we will sink them all. He requires authorization from two other figures on board, according to the rules. Now, one of them is the deputy political officer. He says yes. And the other one was the second in command, who was a man named Vasily Akipov. And he says no. There should be statues to that man in every fucking town in the world, because it's very hard to construct a story where his refusal to accept you know, isn't the reason that we did not end up in a nuclear war at that moment. They were going to fire on American forces. The, the, the domino is very, very obvious. So after that, that's as bad as it gets. I think that's on Black Saturday. And then it gets resolved. Kennedy agrees to withdraw uh, missiles from Turkey. Khrushchev agrees to withdraw them from Cuba. It's resolved, and it genuinely freaks them out. 
Washington, understandably. <laughs> and they start proper diplomacy. So you get a hotline so the leaders can communicate better because the communication was so bad that Khrushchev would sometimes communicate with Kennedy through the news. That he would make a press statement because that would get to him quicker than anything else. Oh how can they? And like, how it's just beyond my comprehension that at no point someone's like at least have a phone line. Like a phone line is not appeasement. <laughs> yeah. Know? No, they, they they just couldn't, they couldn't communicate, and they realised that distrust almost, you know, uh, destroy the world. They have an, a ban on above ground nuclear testing and arms limitation treaties. And one of the historians, I think Spencer Weir, argues that. Once the mushroom cloud disappeared as a visual, that contributed to people worrying less about nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. the, the test, oh, that's so interesting. It wasn't the yeah, testing. Yeah. Not just, so during the 60s and 70s, even though you've got Dr. Strangelove, The War Game, Planet of the Apes, mm. people become less scared because, and so they enter this very weird psychological state. Because basically, the, the argument that psychologists make is that it is untenable. Uh, Robert J. Lifton, who I mentioned in the 60s, he went to Hiroshima to interview the Hibakusha. But he also studied American responses to the threat of nuclear war. And he said, what you got was various combinations of resignation, cynicism, and yearning. Because people felt like you couldn't do anything about it, and there's a lot like climate change now, actually, mm. they went, either you deny it, or you just think somebody will sort this out. Or you sort of accept it and go, oh, well. Yeah, yeah. I guess one day they're going to drop the bomb. You actually get this in quite a lot of pop songs later on. It's just like, oh, you know, what? this is awful, but what can you do? Mm. Just because you can't live in fear. Jonathan Shell in The Face of the Earth, 1982, because we're moving to the 80s now after this period of detente. He says it's a source of mass insanity that consisted not in screaming and making a commotion, but precisely in not doing these things in the face of overwhelming danger, as though everyone had been sedated. And Shell's the New Yorker writer, and his purpose in this book was to wake everybody up. Mm. It's like, oh, for God's sake, why aren't you screaming, essentially? Yeah. And the answer is because people cannot live like that. What you want to do is turn that scream into activism, as people want to do with climate change. You want to turn all that anxiety into people on the streets in such numbers that the governments have to bow. It tends to be not what happens. And if that doesn't happen, then people are like, well, I can't be screaming all day. Mm -hmm. Like I have to just get on with my life while in the back of your mind, there's just like the bomb could drop tomorrow. Yeah, It is a, and so there are theory, there are books, which basically like the entire post-war youth culture, you know. It's based on that. Yeah, it's based it on sense. the fear of the bomb. It's, it's rock and roll. It's the beatniks. Yeah, yeah. It's psychedelia. All of it is trying to express this, you know, intolerable feeling. Well, so what do you do? You know, what, what are the life choices you make if you think that maybe I won't be around in 10 years? Mm. You know, if you're a 20 year old, right. you might be like, well, maybe I don't need to buy a house and settle down. And, you know, in the 60s, we come up with the actual phrase mutually assured destruction, which comes formal policy. And there's a real attempt. So a fascinating figure is Robert McNamara, the US Secretary of Defense. One of his things is like, no more euphemisms and no more vagueness. You know, we should be saying what it is that we will do right. very clearly and actually in a very odd way, actually sort of encouraging the Soviet Union's own destruction capacity. So the whole thing is we have to both be able to destroy each other and we have to both recognize that that's the thing that's going on. Complete clarity, a convergence of doctrine and mutual understanding. The trouble is they can't stop the arms race. 
they just cannot bring it to a halt. I mean, partly it's, you know, because of any kind of change in technology means the other side has to do the same thing, right? So there's a change in technology about your your anti-missile defense. There's a change in terms of the missile guidance system that can make them much more sort of accurate than they were before. There's an improvement on reconnaissance, so the quality of the images from reconnaissance satellites. If you're getting higher quality images, you've got a greater first strike capacity because you can have a greater idea of where they're keeping all the stuff. So each time that happens, the other side has to go like, well, we obviously need to address this as well. And it's very hard to stop it because there is, at this point, this coalition, right? Well, I mean, let's call it what it is. It's the military industrial complex, you know? So you have, you know, scientists and engineers who are developing the weapons. You have industrial contractors who produce them. You have Congress people in whose district they're made. You have the military who use the final product. And there's just this kind of economic ecosystem that is in their interest to keep on building it, to keep on doing it in this way. In 1968, there is this extraordinary speech by McNamara, which is, I mean, just, it's almost hard to believe that it's true. He basically says, look, we're kind of caught in this trap where he calls it the action-reaction phenomenon between us and the Soviets. And he's talking about this Kremlin buildup that was then underway as a result of a US buildup in the early 60s, which was interpreted by the Soviets as trying to build up the capacity for first strike. McNamara says this, this was not, in fact, our intention. Our goal was to ensure that they with their theoretical capacity to reach such a first strike capacity would not outdistance us, but they could not read our intentions with any great accuracy than we could read theirs. The result has been that we have both built up our forces to a point that far exceeds a credible second strike capacity against the forces we each started with. In doing so, neither of us have reached the first strike capacity. <laughs> so you're just trapped in this mm. endless loop of paranoia that means that no matter how much you try with these sort of armed you know, treaties and trying to stop it, Neither side can stop themselves from just chugging along and doing it. A little bit later, when Gorbachev actually finally just manages to see the accounts of the Soviet Union, he finds that 25% of the economy is dedicated to this, to the arms race. It's just an extraordinary, it's basically like a, a society sucking out its own capacity to function. People's material lives are collapsing because of this insane paranoid cycle. I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who supports us on Patreon and funds the research and makes this podcast possible, including this week, Alastair Keith, Martin Butler, Andrew Dandilly, LJ and Siobhan McCluskey. Thank you so much, guys. Well, the last big shift, the, the period that we're going to talk about is the is the early 80s. It's really Reagan's first term. Some historians say uh, this was even more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis. Obviously, they're disputed because historians love to argue. But anyway, Ronald Reagan enters the White House. One of the first things he does is he ramps up military spending like crazy. That's undeniably true. There's barely any communication with Andropov, Yuri Andropov in Moscow, who's old and sick and very, very paranoid. So there's total suspicion. So that makes things very bad. There's a whole kind of wave of new writing about um, nuclear war. Then Reagan gets wowed by a new idea from Edward Teller. Still there. Um, <laughs> a ring of satellite lasers in space that could take out Soviet missiles before they hit America. This is the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was nicknamed Star Wars by opponents. He does at one point call it a magic shield, doesn't he? He does. Well, he, he objects to, um, he says, I really wish they wouldn't call it Star Wars. It's not about war. It's about mm. defense. Mm. But then in a speech about it, he does say, um, may the force be with us. So he's 
He really refused he really on the messaging. Resist. Now, weirdly, this is like the cobalt bomb. It never happened. It could not have worked. Mm. There were lots of people just going, Teller's lost his mind. There is no way this is going to work. Technically, it's not going to work. Strategically, Reagan think, loves it, though, because it's purely defensive. Mm. It's wonderful. It, it kind of removes the, the threat of nuclear war without having to total disarmament. The Russians, understandably, do see it as a deterrence killer. Like, if America can't be hit then it has no reason not to strike first. And this is going on with the installation of cruise missiles and Pershing and so on. So Andropov gets it into his head that the war is imminent. There's these two incidents in autumn 1983, which were not known about at the time. Uh, One of them, a Soviet early warning system, says that US missiles are incoming. And it says it three times. And an officer called Stanislav Petrov insists on checking the data before alerting Andropov and finds that uh, it has misread sunlight reflecting off the clouds. Mm, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ. A few weeks later, the Soviets appear to misinterpret a NATO war game called Able Archer 83 as preparation for a real war. They did an Able Archer every year. They always just kind of (laughs) did these maneuvers. This time, because of the paranoia, they came close to, you know, mobilizing. There was a Again, it's disputed how close they came. But certainly it was like a pretty hairy moment Mm. and almost nobody knew what happened. So another thing that happens in 1983, which is the most crucial year, is a theory, a new theory that explains how you could actually end the world. Because there were people thinking that bombs could end the world literally the day after Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. But, you know, atomic bombs couldn't. H-bombs kind of could, but... You, you know, that's why people start thinking of the cobalt bomb, because like even H-bombs wouldn't kill everybody. Mm. So the celebrity scientist Carl Sagan uh, has a new theory, uh, which he announces around Halloween 1983, because uh, it's spooky. And he and his colleagues have been modeling the atmospheric effects on nuclear war based on a few things, like look at dust clouds on Mars, historic uh, volcanic in- eruptions, and the new theory which is now taken as red, you know, that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. One of the people behind that theory was Luis Alvarez, who worked on the bomb huh. and witnessed both Trinity and Hiroshima. What the fuck? So he just, it's like he's in two parts of, of yeah, history. Yeah. And what it all comes down to in all of these cases is if you get enough dust and soot, it, like it blocks sunlight. So the eruption of a major volcano causes uh, global cooling for like a year or two afterwards. If you have enough, then it blocks all the sunlight, or pretty much all the sunlight. Temperatures plummet. The food chain is destroyed because you've got no photosynthesis. People start to starve. This is what happened with uh, you know, the dinosaurs. It's the, the anti-greenhouse effect. So Sagan's team model this with nuclear weapons, and they come up with the phrase nuclear winter, which advocates for nuclear weapons hated and tried to discredit but couldn't really succeed the best mm, they could get mm. was it wouldn't be a nuclear winter it'd be more like a nuclear autumn <laughs> still like pretty, not extinction but like really really very bad because they really you know this was maybe the theory that made the war impossible martin amos in an essay about nuclear war said it's the best news on this front since 1945 it is the best news because it is the worst news mm. how long will it take us to grasp that nuclear weapons are not weapons that they are slashed wrists gas-filled rooms global booby traps mm. and this becomes part of the thinking around nuclear war so when we talk about apocalyptic scenarios sometimes you look at like the matrix the road yeah yeah what yeah. we're seeing yeah is the image of nuclear winter, which didn't exist until, and this happens, this is in autumn 1983, 
around the time The Day After comes out, around the time of Abel Archer, around the time of Stanislav Petrov. It's the most crucial two, three months. Mm. You know, almost like in the history of, of, of thinking about nuclear weapons. Now, the great myth of this period, I think, is that Reagan was like a gung-ho warmonger. Like mm -hmm. he was the equivalent of Slim Pickens at the end of Dr. Strangelove riding the bomb <laughs> and waving his cowboy hat. And, um, and this is not true. It's not true at all. I sometimes worry that this podcast is going to turn into like the opposite of The Guardian. It's like, you know, oh, that thing you hate. Turns out it's actually quite reasonable, right? But he's, I mean, he is haunted by nukes all the way through. He says, my dream became a world free of nuclear weapons. Some of my advisors, including a number at the Pentagon, did not share this dream. They tossed around macabre jargon about throw weights and kill ratios as if they were talking about baseball scores. But for the eight years as president, I never let my dream of a nuclear world fade from my mind. And I have to say, it'd be very easy to take that as the sort of, you know, memoir writing of sure. it or whatever. But actually, when you look at his actions, I think he did pretty much the best he could to follow through from that. But also things that he was saying at the time, there's quite famous examples of his reactions to, he was obviously a former actor, loved the movies, loved screening movies at Camp David. And his reactions to the movies in 83, both of them War Games and The Day After, mm. was genuinely like freaked out. <laughs> he was asked after War Games, could this actually happen? You know, really, really depressed. But I do think... That the, you know, that that fear was there. Mm -hmm. That even though he's sort of weirdly obsessed with Armageddon, he didn't want to bring it about. Mm -hmm. There were certainly some people in his administration who probably thought it was their job as Christians mm. to hasten Armageddon. And there were people that said that arms limitation treaties were like uh, blasphemous. Oh, wow. Because, Jesus. Because God wanted the world to end. My God. And he, so he wasn't like that. So given the circumstances, <laughs> I mean, there's actually one uh, moment in a summit meeting with Gorbachev where they come very, very close to agreeing to abolish all nuclear weapons. Because, I mean, Gorbachev's in the same place. I mean, Gorbachev, A, instinctively is in the same place, but he also recognizes that they are just sabotaging their own economy. Why ultimately does the Soviet Union, in terms of the public attitude towards it, a lot of it's just like, well, we want better stuff, right? You know, it's the queues outside of McDonald's. That is a genuine part of why that happens. You know, this money is just being funneled off towards nothing. He says to people who are, you know, within his own regime who are questioning his, de his decision to, to disarm, the most important task is to prevent a new round of arms race. It will lead to a wearing out of our economy. This is impermissible. If they impose a second round of arms race upon us, we'll lose. So there's just, mm. beyond anything else, there's also there's this economic realism from Gorbachev. It's just saying, well, we've got to do this. After the Cold War, there's a real moment where things could fundamentally change, right? I mean, you got President Bush in 1991, he's talking about negotiations on strategic weapons, working reciprocally on the tactical weapons, a unilateral moratorium on tests, a cancellation of all new developments, and a promise to withdraw the at-sea deterrent. And yet it, it doesn't happen. This is the thing that breaks me, that all of this theory is, well, there's these two powers. They can both destroy each other. And as soon as that stops pertaining, yeah. there is still no improvement. Instead, the conversation goes to the, these matters that used to be on the periphery of the debate, which is 
North Korea, it's uh, Iraq, it's Saddam Hussein, right? The expectation from lots of people in that period is, okay, this is all they're asking for. No one, no one is even talking about going below the level of being able to destroy the world. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the reductions insofar as they're there is, is a reduction in delivery vehicles to 1,600 and strategic warheads from 13,000 to 6,000 for each side. But they are still well above, you can destroy the world many, many times over. What people wanted was this kind of really retreated, you know, you can destroy the world sure. once. Fine. We'll set the limit there for now. And we just can't get there. And in fact, you get this political process whereby anyone that talks about reduction eventually starts to be seen as weak. I mean, especially under sort of George Bush Jr. and, and those later regime. 20 years after this period, General George Butler, the head of the US Strategic Command, says, I weep for the opportunities lost and strategic blunders committed that close the door on the possibilities of the world that I envisaged in 1992. And I do just think it is, there's so many different ways in which that period, like economically, when you think yeah. about how the, you know, former Soviet Union was treated politically, given where we are now, it's such a tragedy. The opportunity that was there was extraordinary and we just pissed it away. Well, the doomsday clock, which is currently, I think, at 90 seconds, right. was at 17 minutes in the early 90s. I'm just absolutely extraordinary how yeah. optimistic it was. Yeah. So, Ian, I've got, I've got like a question, question for you. Where is my bunker? <laughs> Have you got enough tinned food? Uh, Luis Alvarez again, right? He always defended dropping the bomb on Hiroshima. When it ended the war, I've gone no. He's like, he went back to Los Alamos and he was just like, why is everyone crying? This, is, <laughs> this was great. We did, we did the job. And he said in his memoir, this is in the 80s, I have difficulty understanding why so many people see nuclear weapons as mankind's greatest threat. Not one of them has been used since World War II. Without question, they have prevented World War III, which would otherwise almost certainly have been fought by now with an enormous loss of life. So this is like mm -hmm. the rosiest interpretation of Terence. Like it genuinely was what Thomas Edison said a weapon like this would be. It would be so scary that nobody would use it. Mm -hmm. And we can look back and say objectively... Well, nobody did use it. Then there are all these kind of accidents and misunderstandings and close shaves and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Like, is it ever possible to go, oh, deterrence, ghastly though it was, you know, mad and mutually sure destruction, that it did actually work? Or were we just very, very lucky? Isn't it a non-falsifiable proposition? <laughs> because you just like, mm. you just say it, it, it will be true Every day until the day it isn't. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, and then you'd be like, oh, it turns out deterrence didn't work. You know, I, I just, so I just, it doesn't really strike me as very effective. If you look at all the moments that were saved by a bloke, yeah, it was yeah. just like, no, you know what? I'm not going to go okay with that. Or I'm going to double check the data on that. You know, that, it, unless you want your whole system to be based on being lucky enough to have a bloke that's willing to do that, <laughs> it doesn't seem to me to be like a tremendously stable arrangement. So we were just very lucky. I think we were. I mean, and of course, we did have other wars, not world wars, but there have been many, many, many wars since 1945. The only glimmer I had of doubting on this was reading, and I had no idea about this. I know that you, you already did do this when we were chatting, is, is that Ukraine gave up its nuclear arsenal yeah. um, at the end of the Cold War. Um, and in fact, would have had the world's third largest nuclear arsenal, by the way, unless it had decided to give it up. And then it made me think, well, actually, if Ukraine had those nukes, would Russia be in Ukraine right now, right? Yeah. And the answer to that may well be no, okay? 
Well, this is why it's so problematic because we have actually had, you know, for years, it hasn't been maybe front of mind for most of us, tensions between India and Pakistan. Yeah, I mean, hours. Jesus Christ. North Korea, do you remember Rocket mm-hmm, Man? Mm-hmm. Trump calling him Rocket Man. Yeah. And there was a real fear yeah. during the Trump years of, of somebody in North Korea. The long saga of trying to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. We've got China building up its arsenals. Mm-hmm. And yet it's Ukraine. And maybe it's because of that, that memory of Russia. It's like when Russia does it, then it suddenly seems real. Now, what really troubles me about this is the people who glibly go, oh, it could cause World War III. Mm. It's almost always people who want Ukraine to concede to Russia. And so it's essentially yes. Yes. accepting that this is a bully's tool and going, I guess you better give the bully mm. what they want. Don't poke the Russian bear. And, and what troubles me, actually, is how much this is using some of the extremely valid anti-nuclear rhetoric of the 1980s, for example. Yes. So I found yes. this uh, thing that Herman Kahn, just before he died, wrote about Jonathan Shell's book, The Fate of the Earth. Because Shell put it in very, very intense, most shrill terms to shock the reader, it was exactly the opposite of what Khan liked. Right. And he went, the state of mind Shell wants Americans to be in would permit the Russians to manipulate the threat of nuclear holocaust as a cover for new and dangerous aggressions. Interesting. Now, I am much more in Shell's camp than yeah. Khan's. Yeah. But I'm like, is this sort of what is happening now? And the, the, the bottom line for me is that it's not credible that he is not going to do that. I can't feel that degree of confidence on anyone. For us to come to those conclusions presumes an access to his mental state, which we just don't have. You know, the the thing that I kept on thinking during the stuff was, was imagine if Trump and maybe the other populists, but particularly Trump, was more of a kind of warmonger rather than an isolationist. Mm. You know, he just happens to be an isolationist mm. kind of guy. He could be a warmonger guy. And then what does that guy do? Given that, you know, with, as you say, yeah, with yeah. that North, North Korea example, it's fluctuating all over the place, saying the most completely insane stuff. So, I mean, my, I guess my basic instinct when reading this stuff is, is I just don't want to be reliant on sure. the sanity or good sense of world leaders for my continued survival. I'm, I'm not at all complacent about the future. I just think in the specific issue of, of mm-hmm. Ukraine, I, like, I fail to see any way in which uh, Putin could use them, and presumably we're talking tactical weapons, like yeah. battlefield yeah. weapons, without all the problems you described. No, exactly, without hitting described earlier, yeah. fallout mm-hmm. and hitting his own troops and, and you know, becoming the ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the ultimate international pariah, threatening reprisals. I, mean, I don't know what those reprisals would be. But it just seems to me that that still that power of the horror of what could happen next yes. is still in play. And that if, if all that happens is that Putin just mentions nuclear weapons and then you get a lot of people going, Oh, well, we better do what he says. Yeah. Like, that seems to me like the wrong lesson to take. I'm not going, well, why don't you threaten him with nuclear weapons? <laughs> but perhaps not to take that as like the guy with the nukes gets to call the shots. Yes, yes, 100%. 100%. Um, that doesn't seem like either a sort of strategic or a, a moral position. And so I, I flinch. Who uses phrases like, oh, it's World War Three? People like Elon Musk, mm-hmm. who don't want any support for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. 
Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts You know what scares me the most is the silence about it like it just feels like I mean partly this happened after the Cuban Missile Crisis and then partly happened after the end of the Cold War of it just became a thing that we don't talk about anymore and i'm sure that's much more pleasant than living you know in that period where we would have been thinking i've only got 10 years yeah. we sort of we it's almost like we pretend to ourselves that these things don't exist the only time i hear it mentioned is when someone runs to be a new leader of the conservative party and one question on the sunday morning show yeah, is yeah. like would you launch and that's basically the whole extent of our national conversation about our own deterrent and that worries me because it just i don't think it it is inconceivable that you end up in a situation where someone is stupid enough or emotional enough or scared enough to use it in what they think will be an expression of their potency and virility, mm -hmm. you know, but it will in fact be a situation that they fundamentally cannot control. And having these things there, these species-ending genocide weapons, just sat there with the quality of political leadership that we see in our own country and mm. around the world, fills me with something close to alarm and, and actually it's funny i haven't had it before i read that chapter of your book and i got it and then doing this research has made it actually quite a lot worse for me and i feel more unsettled by it than i had mm. expected to well it, it it changed my thinking in in another way as i thought if only the bomb had not been invented and then actually when you look at the the history of the science you know hd wells writes in 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 the world set free he says if it hadn't have been this scientist it would have been somebody else right and you yeah. realize almost yeah. as soon as people became aware that it was possible to split the atom that things like neutrons existed that radioactivity was a thing right back from the 1890s at some point science was going to get to this point and at some point somebody was going to build the bomb so it's not if only you know robert oppenheimer had said no sir i'm not doing that <laughs> it feels like the inevitability goes back all the way and that mm. there is just no chance that we would have got to 2023 and one regime or another would not have gone let's see if we can make bombs with this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that's probably why it's so overwhelming because you're just you know you're just like well what what could have been done differently in history and what can we do now to agitate you know do you agitate for unilateral disarmament like labor in the early 80s does no, that of course not, no. you know so so it, it seems like it is it, it is the insoluble issue and the heartbreaking thing i suppose is what you're saying is that it was almost soluble in the early 90s let's just take a moment to thank you guys who are supporting us and making this podcast possible Thanks particularly this week to Laura Massey, Jared Michael Hamill, Martin Hetherington, Rob Kinnear, and Richard Allgood. And that is the end of part two. 
Thank you for listening. Uh, please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing us on social media, or giving us a star rating. You can find us on Twitter at Origin Storycast. And if you want to go further, you can back us on Patreon to get bonus episodes, access to live events, merchandise, and an enormous sense of well-being. <laughs> thanks to relaxing topics. Relax- guarantee the last Thanks part. to relaxing topics <laughs> such as nuclear war. Do let us know your thoughts on this episode, any previous episodes, or suggestions for future topics on the Patreon page. And we're very excited to announce our second ever live show, which will be at 21 Soho in London on the 11th of July. We'll put a link to buy tickets in the show notes. If you're in the area, we would love to see you there. And join us next week when we talk about climate change denial. See you then, guys. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The producer was Liam Tate and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production. Thank you.